Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings. This is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine brought to you here on a weekly basis. And uh, today is Sunday, uh, June 19th, 2022. Today is Juneteenth, a national holiday inside the United States commemorating the end of enslavement uh, in 1865. And uh, we'll be broadcasting live uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again uh, to another edition of our program. We are continuing uh, to honor uh, Black Music Month uh, throughout uh, the month of June. Black Music Month began in the late 1970s, uh, and we're going to continue that uh, tradition here today at the Pan-African Journal Special Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Also, as we mentioned earlier, today is Juneteenth, a national holiday in the United States commemorating the emancipation from enslavement in 1865. Our Pan-African Newswire report features the following dispatches, where the large-scale arms shipments uh, by the United States to Ukraine has not altered the course of the war, according to the Russian Foreign Ministry. A debate over the status of United Nations peacekeeping forces in Mali has erupted uh, at the Security Council related to the role of the Russian Federation as well as other NATO countries. There have been uh, demonstrations in Tunisia against the government of President Thais Saeed. And uh, Juneteenth is being commemorated throughout the United States amid the escalation of racial strife inside the country. In the second and third hours, we focus our attention on two legendary musical and social icons uh, who have contributed immensely to the African and world cultures, Miriam Makeba, as well as Richie Havens. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, We'll take a musical interlude, and uh, we'll be back uh, with more of uh, the Pan-African Journal for this week. Mama, 
Tokina landina kokupa Nakopala ngana telengi alibala Oh, my God. 
Rishkeli, Nundali, Okokende Boetindale, Nakosara Nyukundale, Sheri, Okokita. Ba 
Sunday, uh, June 19, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And um, that was the music of the Orchestra Afrisa International under the direction of Taboule Rasharu, um, emanating uh, from the country now known as the Democratic Republic of Congo. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. Our lead story deals with the ongoing crisis in Ukraine and Eastern Europe, <clears throat> by supplying arms to Ukraine, the United States will not be able to deprive Russia of the right to its own voice in international affairs and force it to comply with the rules invented by Washington. Now, that's according to the Russian Foreign Minister, Sergei Lavrov. He said this in an interview with the Rosia One television network uh, earlier today. When asked about what the United States is trying to achieve by sending additional shipments of weapons to Ukraine, the minister pointed out that Washington had declared these goals for a long time. They are achieving what they announced a long time ago, that Russia must know its place. Russia does not have the right to its own voice in international affairs. Russia must comply with the rules that were invented by the United States. That's all. I think they understand very well that they won't succeed, Lavrov stressed. 
Earlier, Russian ambassador to the United States, Anatoly Antonov, said that pumping up uh, the Kiev government with U.S.-made weapons is a road to direct military confrontation between the two biggest nuclear superpowers fraught with what he described as unpredictable consequences. Also, in regard to the uh, Ukraine situation, several commanders of Ukraine's Azov Nationalist Battalion, who surrendered in Maripol, have been taken to Moscow, uh, Lefortova Detention Center. A source in law enforcement agencies told the TOSS news agency earlier today. Currently, several Azov commanders uh, who were taken prisoner during the battles for Maripol have been taken to Lefortova, the source said, but did not disclose their names. According to earlier reports, Sivaslav Palama, a deputy commander of the Azov Battalion, Sergei Valitsky, uh, called Vonia, the commander of the 36th Marine Brigade of the Ukrainian Armed Forces, who surrendered in Maripol, were transferred to Russia for investigative purposes. More than 1,000 Ukrainian troops who surrendered in Maripol have been transferred to Russia for investigative activities. A source in law enforcement agencies told TASS that more than 100 troops taken prisoner in Maripol's Azafal works, including foreign mercenaries, might be kept in Moscow. According to the Russian Defense Ministry, as many as 2,439 Ukrainian troops and Azov Battalion members surrendered arms on May 16th after being blocked at the Azovstal works uh, for about a month. On May 20th, Russian forces liberated the plant's entire territory. And Italian energy company ENI, ENI, reported earlier today that it continues receiving gas volumes from Gazprom in reduced volumes. Gazprom announced that today it will deliver volumes of gas in line with the quantities delivered in the last days, the company said in a statement. In recent days, Italy has received smaller than requested volumes of gas, ranging from 50 to 65 percent. NIC CEO Claudio Desclazzi uh, said uh, yesterday that gas supplies in Italy now exceeds demand. He said that in the context of a shortage of approximately 30 million cubic meters of Russian gas per day in Italy, the supply reaches 200 million thanks to an increase in alternative supplies, while the demand is 150 to 160 million. However, according to experts, uh, there is a problem of filling the storage facilities, which are currently 54% full, while they should be at least 80 to 90% full by the new heating season. Industry representatives point to the danger of a decline in production amid high prices, the growth of which is facilitated by the short supply of Russian gas to Europe. According to media reports, the government is considering raising the warning level to a threat in the energy supply, emergency meetings are to be held next week. On Tuesday, our Gazprom announced that it had to lower natural gas supplies over the Nord Stream pipeline against the schedule due to untimely return of gas pumping units from repair by Siemens and identified malfunctions of motors. Due to this fact, only three gas pumping units could be used at the Portavia compressor station and the company could provide for gas pumping over the gas pipeline up to 100 million cubic meters daily compared to 167 million cubic meters per day under the plan. 
In turn, Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi called the reduction in supplies, quote, political leverage, unquote, from Russia. And the explanation of the reduction due to technical difficulties is, quote, a lie, unquote. On Thursday, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said that there have been no deliberate actions by Gazprom on reduction of gas supplies to Europe. Yet there was a problem with turbines. And uh, in regard to uh, developments in West Africa, tensions between Russia and the West are aggravating talks about the future of one of the United Nations' biggest and most perilous peacekeeping operations, the forces sent to help Mali resist a decade-long Islamic extremist insurgency. The UN's mission in the West African nation is up for renewal this month at a volatile time when extremist attacks are intensifying. Three United Nations peacekeepers have been killed this month alone. Mali's economy is choking on sanctions imposed by neighboring countries after its military rulers postponed the promised election. France and the European Union are ending their own military operations in Mali amid sovereign relations with the governing uh, military government. United Nations Security Council members widely agree the peacekeeping mission known as MINUSMA needs to continue. But a council debate this week was laced with friction over France's future role in Mali and the presence of Russian military contractors. The situation has become very complex for negotiations, said Rama Yadi, senior director of the Africa Center at the Atlantic Council, a Washington-based think tank. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In North Africa, uh, Tunisians have demonstrated in the capital against a planned referendum on constitutional changes caused by President Thais Saeed uh, that could cement his hold on power. Protesters in Tunis responded to calls from opposition parties. They chanted constitution, liberty, and dignity, and the people want an independent judiciary. The demonstrators also expressed opposition to a recent decision by President Saeed to expel as many as 57 judges he accused of corruption and protecting terrorists. Saeed's purge of the judiciary has already sparked a national outrage. He has been accused of undermining uh, Tunisia's democratic institutions. The latest uh, demonstration was organized by the Salvation Front, a coalition including the Anada, the largest party in a parliament that Saeed dissolved uh, in March. Ali Lariade, the leader of Framinata, said the plan plebiscite was a fraud. The referendum is just nothing but a fraud, he said. We are demonstrating against the exclusion of the judicial authority and against the coup d'etat that targets the Constitution. With that, we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners uh, that uh, the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. Uh, it is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. This press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. And uh, if you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire, 
all you need to do is go to our website, and that's at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to uh, have access uh, to this program, uh, this special worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for the Pan-African Journal for uh, Sunday, June 19th, uh, 2022, uh, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. And that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And we're going to, um, in the next segments, uh, focus on Black Music Month uh, 2022. And uh, we have uh, two features that are coming up. But first, we'll take a break uh, with the legendary Carla Thomas from Memphis, Tennessee. Let's listen in. Thank you, Mother. 
Welcome back. Uh, the voice of Carla Thomas with the tune entitled No Time to Lose. And we're going to begin our um, Black Music Must focus uh, this segment uh, on uh, a cultural figure, musician and songwriter and actress and political activist, Miriam uh, Makeba. Zenzili uh, Miriam Makeba uh, was born on March the 4th of 1932. She made her transition on November the 9th of 2008. Uh, she was hailed as Mama Africa. Uh, she was uh, from the Republic of South Africa. She was a singer, songwriter, actress, and civil rights as well as Pan-Africanist activist. Uh, associated with musical genres, including uh, Afro-pop, uh, South African jazz, uh, what later became known as world music. Uh, she was an advocate against apartheid and white minority rule in South Africa, as well as colonialism throughout Africa and the world. Born in uh, Johannesburg uh, to Swazi and Gotsa parents, Makeba was forced to find employment as a child after the death of her father. She, of course, uh, went on uh, to become a legendary uh, figure. Her vocal talent had been recognized when she was a child, and she began singing professionally in the early 1950s uh, with the Cuban Brothers, a South African group, and uh, the Manhattan Brothers, and an all-women's group called the Skylarks. Uh, they performed a mixture of jazz and traditional African songs, as well as uh, Western popular music. In 1959, Makeba uh, had a role in the anti-apartheid film Come Back Africa, which brought her international attention and led to her performing in Venice, London, and New York City. In London, she met with the American singer, Harry Belafonte, who became a mentor and colleague, she moved then to New York City, where she became immediately popular and recorded her first solo album in 1960. Her attempt to return to apartheid South Africa that year for her mother's funeral was blocked uh, by uh, the apartheid government. And that's just um, some aspects uh, of the journey, the trajectory of uh, Mama Africa, uh, Miriam McCabe. And uh, let's listen uh, to a audio documentary, a rare archival audio file, uh, taking uh, some of the uh, highlights of uh, the life of Mama Africa. Let's listen in. Dividing, she was unifying. She was known as the flame of, of unity and cultural diversity. She read that speech which really damned uh, uh, the South African government even further. At that time, I think uh, she felt much stronger about it because she couldn't uh, come back to come and bury her mother, who had died shortly after she left. My records, for instance, have been banned since 1962 in mm -hmm. South Africa. They don't sell them anymore. People who have them just have to play them privately mm -hmm. and hope that nobody uh, that shouldn't hear them hears them. So then she was banned for the second time. to New York, Bongi had just come a few months before me, and uh, I was going to Manhattan School of Music, so I was living with Bongi, because Miriam was on the road all the time. I think to a certain extent, uh, that's why our marriage didn't work, because we're more like brother and sister, you know, 
We're more like siblings. The next real big moment was the first time we went to Africa. You landed on the tarmac, and when the door opened, and all the fresh smell of the earth Africa. came up at me. Yeah, I remember that. That was such a dynamic thing. You know, I mean, it's, you know, that, that, that I, I just can't describe. I mean, we did quite a bit of this, you know, caravan. One period we got stuck in the mud, going to this field, whatever we were going to the field, rather than just being on the road. But then Africa is Africa, so the point is to get to the end there. So, and uh, so we got stuck in the mud. But uh, she's trying to help. She's trying to trying to tell them how to do this. Which has a, a, a deep meaning, 
I would have preferred another song to be popular than Pata Pata. But then people choose what they want. So. And a lot of the places, especially in Africa that we went to, she was treated like royalty. Well, that's, that's true. That's true. And actually, she really was. You know, the, the streets were lined with people for miles. And periodically, we had to stop so she could greet people. And uh, they also had presents for her. She went to Tanzania. And the president of Tanzania at that time, Julius Nyerere, was a believer in African people regaining the language and teaching the language in school with other languages. And the fact that Miriam always sang in so many different African languages pleases Mr. Nyerere. She heard Malaika and she learned it and she recorded it. Malaika! Protect him. 
Stokely Carmichael was a very brilliant student from New York. His family came from the Caribbean. He went to Howard University, which is a prestigious black university in Washington, D.C. He went there in 1960 a year in which a tremendous political focus was on Africa, on the independence of African countries. After King's assassination and Malcolm's assassination, Stokely became sort of the firebrand black leader. At some point in Guinea, in a visit to Guinea, maybe a subsequent visit, I'm not sure, uh, Miriam and Stokely met when Miriam was there as a guest of Sekou uh, the president. extraordinarily charming, very, very articulate, had a wonderful, amazing smile, and uh, lots of humor, and is very incisive. Um, many people didn't agree with him, but I think it would be hard to find many people who don't like him. The Caribbean is full of black people, and our mother continent, Africa, there is to be found millions and millions and millions and millions of black people. Black power means all of these millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of black people coming together to form black people. The entire mass media of America, the entire mass media of America came against Nick and against black power. They did every possible thing to destroy the concept and were incapable of doing it. We're not going to win this struggle today. We're not going to win it tomorrow. This is a struggle. This is a long struggle. We're fighting, the, we're, we're fighting a struggle that has been taking place for 500 years and even way beyond that. We're just a small part of that struggle. <laughs> We have to find what our mission is, what the mission of this generation is, and do that, and do it perfect, properly, correctly, thoroughly, and completely. There is nothing, nothing we cannot do. All we got to do is the Honorable Marcus Garvey say this, get up and do it. Well, mighty race. Up oh, now, you mighty race. they're married, which is your honeymoon. This is the time to be celebrating. The day after, she discovered that all her concert dates in the United States had been canceled. I remember being in a car with Stokely and, 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 and uh, he pulled up to the FBI. He said, 
well, I'm leaving now. I'll be back at such and such a time. <laughs> but, you know, they were always there, right there to see you know, where, where they lived. We have problems everywhere. Sometimes people send us threatening letters, and some send very vulgar letters and tell us, nigga, get out of here and go. So there's nowhere to run. Uh, we just have to stay wherever we are and and fight to liberate ourselves. Some people here say that you lost something of your popularity back in the United States. They don't buy your records so much as before. What do you say to that? Oh, I would, that's not true. That's not true? No. No, I would say I've lost my popularity. Uh, there is a, a boycott on my record on the part of radio stations, but I don't think I'll ever lose my popularity with the people. Why uh, this boycott? I don't know. They all give different reasons. Is that because of your marriage to Dr. Carmichael? Oh, yes. And you, Mr. Carmichael, what are you going to do here in Sweden? I'm just going to be with my wife. And the plans, political activity and such? No, I'm just going to look and listen. The greatest paradox of Miriam's life for me is that she was very close to Golda Meir, who was crazy about her until 1967, when she was married to Stokely and he said something about Israel. And the next day you couldn't find her records in the stores. And she was just iced in, in, in the States. And I think, like, the, that very week, she just, you know, secretary just said, hey, you have a home in Guinea. And that's when, when she went to Guinea. <laughs> Our next artist is one of the most magnificent talents of our time, 
and I take great pleasure in introducing to you Sister Miriam McCable Carmichael. Probably everybody wants to know how Stokely is. <laughs> he's well, he's alive and well in Conakry. <laughs> Do you see any difference in, say, the way that this government, let's say dealing with the government, the way that this government approaches you as a black African coming here and, and, and the way that the South African government is approaching black entertainers? Do you see any similarities, any differences? No. I always say the only difference between South Africa and America is very slight. Uh, <laughs> that South Africa admits that they are what they are. <laughs> so in, in a way you know who to deal with. So you don't have to be guessing. <laughs> you have a couple of children. I have one child. She's 20 and she has two children. Her name is Bongi. She writes some of my songs. She writes some of my songs. She has a little boy whom she named Lumumba and she wrote a song about him. And now she has a little girl whom she's named after me. She calls the little girl Zanzi. Oh, wow. That's my closer name. qui me demande mais comment vous faites cette bruit là souvent je me fâche parce que vraiment c'est pas un bruit ça c'est ma langue mais je comprends qu'il ne comprend pas et je fais tout pour expliquer que dans ma langue pour la lettre que on dit non la lettre x on dit non la lettre C, on dit oui. Je, que, on dit que. Les colonisateurs 
peuple de chez nous en Afrique du Sud appelle cette chanson Click Song parce qu'eux, ils ne savent pas dire où on va Ask uh, Mama Mary and Makeba. Out of Guinea, what region would you like to have a house? Where do you feel mostly at home? She mentioned Delaware. Oh, 
the master room. There's a picture of my mother, Simone Millet, who passed on on March 17, 1985, very young. She was only 35 years old. Yeah, this is where the porch was, and it's still here. This is where the musicians would rehearse. Thank you. 
The day she passed away, I, 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 when I had she passed away, I cried like a little baby. But um, uh, she was just amazing, an amazing talent, a talent that was never, never got to be known. Everything was sudden. I mean, it uh, took a long time for them to acknowledge to us that she had passed because we were quite young. We were kids, and I think they didn't want to let us know during our trip coming out here that she had passed. I remember suppressing my feelings. I remember getting to America uh, to go see my dad. My dad called for us uh, when my mom passed away. I remember uh, only a year later, like nine months later, finally crying because my mom passed away. My dad came and found me crying in the closet. It was hard. Could have been, it was hard for any mother. It was one of the greatest tragedies, I think, of her life. And I think um, she never was really the same after that. She was stunned. So quite close. We had nobody else out here. She had me. Weep lights up in the rear to where my childhood days were spent. It wasn't much like paradise, but I miss the dirt. She was the grandmother that came when I, in New York when I was a little kid and when I, I packed my bags to want to leave and go off with her. And she spoiled me as a grandmother. 
you know. But at the same time, she realized my mother was no longer there, and she was taking kind of like a role, a, a double kind of role. Oh. me about that. As you know, my great-grandmother, her mother was a Sangoma. My grandmother was also a Sangoma. My mother was a Sangoma. I've been, I have the same thing, that's what I've been told by the family, by her. Sangoma is Ingoma as well. It's a song. You know, they sometimes say uh, you don't have to be, you become a healer uh, and do something else but healing people. So Miriam was a healer through her music, not through herbs like her mother was. My her mother did it with herbs and she did it with her music. Quand il y a eu la Deuxième République, en 1984, les militaires pensaient qu'il y avait des opposants donc, qui étaient cachés chez elles. Ils sont venus, mais c'était des copains à moi. Ils ont fait semblant de, de chercher, mais ils ne cherchaient pas en fait. Mais elle a eu peur. Et quand elle est allée à l'aéroport, elle a dit « Madame, vous ne pouvez pas partir ». Elle a eu peur. Elle avait acheté une maison en Belgique. On allait tout le temps en Belgique. Elle était plutôt plus fréquente en Europe qu'ici. So when my record company posted me to, to Brussels to go and work there, I suddenly heard that she was in town. I was so happy that, you know, and she came to the studios to see us work. And I had some of my colleagues from South Africa. And every day without fail, she'd bring us food to the studio. Or she would invite us to her place. She's a person that went through a lot of pain. But geez, when she took that microphone and she's on stage, man, the pain is gone. The pain is gone and all she does is to just give. 
to people. And that is the thing that, for me, is the essence of Miriam McKay. In 1959, she began a world tour. And when she attempted to return home, one year later, she was refused to admit. She's been a political exile now for 27 years. Miriam Makeba. Thank you. 
so the public the truth was wild when she went on stage. I'm like, that's what I'm talking about. And and that is Miriam. The people in South Africa start discovering Miriam when she came back. Welcome back, and uh, that was a tribute to uh, Zanzili Miriam Mapkeba. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Black Music Month uh, series here at the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, uh, June 19th, 2022, Juneteenth uh, in the United States. And we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break and we'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week. Journal, 
special worldwide radio broadcast. And we are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit on this day of Sunday, June 19th, 2022, Juneteenth, uh, which now has been a federal holiday for the second consecutive year. And uh, right now we want to um, move into our next segment. And, of course, uh, this segment deals uh, with the legendary uh, guitarist, vocalist, composer, Richie Havens. And, of course, uh, Richie Havens was born uh, in uh, New York, in Brooklyn. Uh, During his life and his professional career, uh, he was born on January 21st of 1941. He made his transition on April 22nd of 2013. He was an African-American singer and songwriter and a guitarist. His music encompassed elements of folk, soul, rhythm, and blues. He had an intense rhythmic guitar style, often in open tunings, and played soulful covers of pop and folk songs. He was the opening act at the well-known Woodstock Music Festival on August 15th of 1969. As I mentioned earlier, uh, Havens was born in Bethesda, Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, New York City. Uh, he was the oldest of nine children. Uh, Havens' uh, grandfather and great uncle joined the Buffalo Bills Wild, Wild West show. They moved to New York City thereafter and settled on the Shinnecock Reservation on Long Island. Havens' grandfather married, then moved uh, to Brooklyn. As a youth, Havens began organizing his neighborhood friends into a street corner doo-wop group at, at 16. He was performing with the McCrea Gospel Singers. At the age of 20, Havens left his uh, hometown of Brooklyn, seeking artistic stimulation in the Greenwich Village in Manhattan. I saw the village as a place to escape to. In order to express yourself, he he recalled, I had first gone there during the beatnik days of the 1950s to perform poetry. Then I drew portraits of for two years and stayed up all night listening to folk music in the clubs. It took a while before I thought of picking up a guitar. Haven's uh, solo performances uh, quickly spread beyond the village folk music circles. After cutting two records for Douglas Records, he signed on with uh, Bob Dylan's manager, Albert Grossman, and landed a record deal uh, with the Verb Folkways, later Verb Forecast label. Verve released a mixed bag in uh, late 1966, which featured tracks such as Handsome Johnny, that was co-written by Havens, and actor Lou Gossett Jr. Follow and a cover of Bob Dylan's Just Like a Woman, Haven released his first single, No Opportunity Necessary, in 1967. Something else again uh, in 1968 became his first album to hit the Billboard charts and it pulled uh, Mixed Bag back onto the chart. By 1969, he had released five albums. Two of those albums were unauthorized. Uh, they were exploitation albums released by Douglas Records or Douglas International. Electric Havens uh, was released on June the 1st of 1968. And uh, Richard Havens' uh, records was also released in 1969. Haven's uh, live performances earned widespread notice. His Woodstock uh, Festival appearance on August 15th of 1969 in Bethlehem, New York, catapulted him into stardom and was a major turning point in his career. 
Despite Haven's recollection that he performed for nearly three hours, the actual recording and set list reflect that he played about 50 minutes. Havens recalled that he was told to continue playing because many artists scheduled to perform after him were delayed in reaching the festival location with the highways at a virtual standstill. Havens recalled being called uh, back for several encores. At the end of his set, Havens improvised a song based on old spiritual motherless child uh, that became Freedom. In an interview with Cliff Smith uh, for Music Room, Havens said, I'd already played every song I knew I was stalling, asking for more guitar and mic, trying to think of something else to play, and then it just came to me. The establishment was foolish enough to give us all this freedom, and we used it in every way we could. The subsequent Woodstock movie release helped Havens reach a worldwide audience. He also appeared appeared two weeks later uh, at the Isle of Wight in late uh, August of 1969. Following the success of the Woodstock performance, Haven started his own record label, Stormy Forest, and re-released Stonehenge in 1970. Later that year came Alarm Clock, uh, which included the George Harrison 10 hit single, Here Comes the Sun. This was Haven's first album to reach Billboard Top 30 charts. Stormy Forecast went on to release four more of his albums, The Great Blind Degree in 1971, Live on Stage from 1972, Portfolio from 1973, and Mixed Bag 2 from 1974. Memorable television appearances included performances on The Ed Sullivan Show and The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson. On the latter program, the audience reacted with such enthusiasm that when the applause continued after the commercial break, Carson asked Havens to return the following night. And uh, that's just some of the details of the life, legend, and contributions of uh, Richie Havens, uh, who uh, was a historical figure. And uh, right now we want to uh, play uh, from uh, that performance on the first day of the Woodstock Festival on August 15th of 1969 uh, in Bethel, New York. Let's listen in. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal special Worldwide radio broadcast. We're getting it tied up. Two or three of the groups are in. We're just trying to match up groups and equipment. We'll be okay. We apologize for the uh, noise of the choppity choppity, but uh, it seems there are a few cars blocking the road, so we're flying everybody in. Okay. Mr. Richie Haven.
around to tell me what that you see. Marching to the fields of Concord. Looks like handsome Johnny with his blink block in his hand. Marching to the Concord War. Hey, marching to the Concord War. Hey, look around to tell me what that you see. Marching to the fields of Gettysburg. Looks like handsome Johnny with his hey, musket in his hand. Marching to the Gettysburg War. Hey, marching to the Gettysburg War. Tell me what's that you see Marching to the fields of Dunkirk Looks like handsome Johnny With a carbine in his hand Marching to the Dunkirk War Hey, marching to the Dunkirk War
sound of the legendary uh, Richie Havens uh, at uh, Woodstock on August 15th of uh, 1969 in Bethel, New York. And right now we want to listen to an interview uh, with uh, Richie Havens about his life and contributions. Let's listen in. I'm Richie Havens, and I'm speaking freely. What this is all about is your right to freedom of speech. What made America great is an independent, vigorous press. If a jerk burns a flag, America is not threatened. Political speech is the heart of the First Amendment. We're expressing their religious beliefs. Now is the time to make justice a reality for all the parts of Welcome to Speaking Freely, a weekly show about free expression in America. I'm Ken Paulson, and this is Richie Hayes. There's a thousand roads that get there. Each one looks the same And with every step you're thinking Should you have gone the other way There are those who give direction Even though they lost themselves And those who finally get there Never leave no trace of the trail So if you're Searching for some peace of mind. I'm not trying to be no prophet. I'm not trying to change your mind. But I think that searching such a waste of time, such a waste of time. There are those who have religion. Teach them how to live each day Yes, they believe in paradise All you've got to do is pray But me, myself, I'm easy I don't really have to know Just as long as I'm still breathing Then I've got somewhere to go Searching for some peace of mind Out in the world that is cold and unkind Hoping someone will show us a sign Throw us a line, paradise the hard place Paradise is a hard place Paradise is a hard place Hard place to find Wonderful. Paradise from uh, the brand new Richie Haven CD, Wishing Well. And uh, we've got uh, Richie on CD. We've got Richie in book form. They can't hide us anymore. Mm -hmm. And the good news is we have Richie Havens in person. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very we're much. We're also joined by Walter Parks, uh, 
glad to have you here. If you've got a book or CD, we can, <laughs> we can plug those a little later. Uh, this had to be a little bit different, recording Wishing Well from recording Mixed Bag. A good uh -huh. number of years between the two. Oh, yes. I Actually, it feels like um, my uh, Mixed Bag 3. <laughs> you know, it's like I did Mixed Bag 2 about 10, 11 years after 1, and now it's uh, the other cycle. So I, I think we're at the top of the cycle again. When it sounds stuck to sound like that, we're back to the beginning. How do you decide it's time to go back in the studio and put a new one out? Um, you know, I really don't. Um, I know uh, that there's a time. I, I actually was on the road promising people this particular one for the last three and a half years. <laughs> but but uh, I get to do it because I actually take the time out of going on the road. Uh, I'm on the road every weekend all year round. So. When they, I'm booked so far ahead, you don't get the chance to think you're going to do it at this time or that time. So I sort of end up doing it in between going out on the road. Well, your whole career has been about music and about activism, about caring about society. And, and the book tells some great stories. One of the surprises to me was that your origins in music largely stem from doo-wop. Uh, with yes. some young people in the neighborhood. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Well, to us, it was rock and roll. <laughs> you know, we were rock and rollers by nature. I still am, actually. Uh, but it, it, was, um, it was a social phenomenon that I think was never really written about in its correct uh, um, portrayal of what happened at that time. I think rock and roll was what I call the first generational primal scream. In that, I mean, we were singing about songs and writing songs about the lives we were living at the time. I think it was quite different in the sense that uh, an entire generation got the chance to do that, I think, really for the first time in the history of the country. And, and this is what I think was the beginning of the change in the country towards the becoming of America. And you have a relatively unique way of playing. Um, yeah, it's called doo-wop stuff. <laughs> <laughs> what it is is, you know, you hear these groups on stage, actually it came from the gospel groups, where they'd get on stage and they'd go, hmm, 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 and they'd tune up before they started singing. Well, I tuned the guitar in one of those chords. And uh, it was pretty funny. In the old days, I used to sit this way, and with the first five songs I learned, I went, <laughs> Like that, you know. <laughs> uh, there was a little bit of laughter out there, you know, but I was serious. <laughs> so it, it sort of eventually it became serious because I was con consistent. I, I kept coming back. <laughs> so, <laughs> the uh, guitar eventually sat up in my lap because my wrist allowed it to, and it looked like I really was playing the guitar. So I got away with a lot of things. The moment most of us became aware of Richie Havens. Uh it was Max Yasker's farm. Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> and, uh, and what probably seemed like a, a good gig to you, but you probably had no idea we'd still be talking about it uh, almost 40 years later. Well, you know, I had an idea that we would the minute I flew over the field and saw all of those people. And for that reason, I thought, uh, well, that's the title of the book, actually. They can't hide us anymore. You know, that, that's what went through my mind. And, and I thought... Now we are above ground. We're no longer relegated to underground by the press or the government or uh, all of those other people. Um, uh, we were now above ground, and we, we were there to celebrate with each other. It really had less to do with 
the people who were playing the music, I, I, I would really say that probably 10% of the people on stage for the whole three days were really known by the audience, and all the rest were discovered there. And uh, as, as not only the audience discovering people, but we, as musicians, discovering other musicians that we had never heard, was Crosby, Stills, and Nash's first gig <laughs> on stage. It was totally magic because of that, because it was totally a happening. No one went on stage when they were supposed to. The, the lineup was completely kibosh. <laughs> Someday, there has to be the Richie Haven story. It's got to be a movie, because no one could resist writing and casting the scene in which you're performing that day. Uh, the day st starts normally enough. It's 5.30 in the morning. You're leaving New York. You're driving to the concert. Yes. You get there at 7.30. You check in at the hotel. And you're supposed to go on like 5th, right? That's right. Take us through the rest of your day. Well, well, we got there pretty early and, and without any problems, actually. We thought we were going to have at least some. And because they expected 75,000 people, you know, <laughs> that was big, you know, that was going to be big enough. And, and um, we, we arrived and, and basically we sat around the hotel, all the bands just sat around, you know, different rooms visiting each other for hours and thinking, well, something's wrong here. It's now 3.30 in the afternoon and no one's left the hotel. And of course they didn't want to tell us they couldn't get anybody to the field. Um, all of the roads were blocked. So they found a farmer down the road with a bubble helicopter, one of those glass bubbles, who landed right outside my window at the Holiday Inn. And then I hear, Richie, would you go over? You have the least instrument. <laughs> said, no problem, you know. I'm flying over there. And then I realized when I got there, I was the only person there that could have gone on. So I ran for an hour as they chased me around trying to get me to go on first. It was just three and four hour late concert. They were going to kill me for, for the promotion, <laughs> I thought, you know. So I, I hid for about an hour and a half. They finally convinced me to, you know, it's okay just to go on. And, and of so course, people for, wanted to. So yeah. not only were you the first performer on the Woodstock stage, you were the only performer. I was the only performer time. there. It's true. It's actually there was one other performer who was hiding under the stage. That was Tim Harden. <laughs> he hid under the stage. He was pretty far under there too, and he sitting playing by himself. But uh, that was it. And he definitely wasn't going on first for sure. Uh, and that's how it all began. And then you play for three and a half hours. You're a relatively new performer. There's got to be limited to your material. You're oh, yes. out of songs, and they're pushing you back on stage one more time. I went off seven times. <laughs> and they'd say, go back, do two more, three more, two more. Finally, I, I said, I, I don't have any more songs to say. I'm finished. I don't, that was the last one I know. Oh. And they said, one more. And I go back. And the long intro you hear on Freedom is actually me stalling, <laughs> um, trying to figure out what am I going to sing. I don't have any more songs. Well... Freedom came out because I looked out and saw and felt that I was actually seeing the freedom that we as a generation had been seeking since the 1950s. And finally, I, this is what we were talking about. We're, we were talking about being free enough to get together and not have anybody think we're together for some particular reason, uh, you know, which uh, could be construed to be negative in that sense. But, um, but I felt um, that we were accomplishing it right then. So the word freedom came out. And then 
Motherless Child came out, which I hadn't sung in about nine or ten years. Um, and I used to sing it traditionally, in a more traditional... And, and right in the middle of that, a, another part of a hymn that I hadn't sung since I was 16 with a family I used to sing that song came out. And I have to tell you the honest truth, I actually didn't know I had done that until I saw the movie a year and a half later. For real. I mean, I just walked up the stage. That was something that happened. It just completely disappeared. And a year and a half later, uh, they, when they asked me to come look at the film, I didn't even remember kind of doing it. <laughs> it was naturally uh, uh, something that happened right on the spot, you know. So, it, and, and then again, it didn't belong to me after that. It belonged to everybody who was there. They, they made it happen. Could we possibly hear some of Freedom? <clears throat> sure. it as sort of the globalization of the youth culture. So the first time ever people around the world were listening to the same music. Yes, and yes it, it was actually. I think to me it was the change of the planet. It really was. It was something large enough for people in other countries to see us making a move in the United States. Because it truly, before Woodstock, um, I used to get a lot of questions about how the lesser um, thought of people in New York, in, in the United States, like 
the people on the bottom rung, how are they doing? You know, questions, you know, like the Native Americans, the Afro-Americans, and many people were around the world were going, how are they doing? You know, when, so it was consciousness to them that something was also amiss here that we had to take care of. And when that happened, they felt we did. They felt we actually rose above that underground status. You know, you've always uh, mixed your music with what you believe in. I was struck that after you got a little popularity, you get invited on The Tonight Show, which is as good a commercial opportunity as you can get. This is, this is when you go triple platinum. Um, and, and you could have selected any song, and, and you, in fact, um, sang a song that raised questions about, about the war in Vietnam. You were, you were in the face of America on that show. How did you decide to play Handsome Johnny? You know, it, it, I, at first, you know, they bring you in early and they, and they do the camera shots to see how they're going to set up and they ask you to do the song. Well, that song was a song that I was singing a bit, um, uh, quite a bit around that time because I believed in what it was saying for the most part. For, for me, it was an anti-war song of all wars. It wasn't directly just Vietnam. One, that's one of the wars I was talking about. So to me, it was a much more open song than I began to feel after I had rehearsed it for the camera. I then realized that most of the people who come here get tickets and they come from the Midwest, which in those days was thought to be the conservative part of the country, not so much anti-Vietnam. Uh, 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 and I thought after I had practiced the song, maybe these people are not going to like this song. You know, they might actually boo me off the stage. What happened was that when I sang it, I probably looked as surprised on the TV as everyone else, but they started clapping and they stood up and they wouldn't stop clapping. And so I think that was the beginning of Johnny's pencil going like that. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was waiting for them to stop and they didn't. So then he said, uh, we're going to go to commercial. When we come back, would you do another song, which wasn't scheduled? And I said, sure, you know. So we came back, they were still clapping. So he, then he said, Richie, you sing another song. And I sing another song. And then he go, they started again. He goes, would you come back tomorrow night? You know, so, which was really something I didn't expect at all. And I, and I said, sure, I'd love to. And, and, and basically, when I went back, he said, you know, I only asked, Barbara Streisand to come back the next night, and she couldn't make it, so you, you, you got one up on her. But that was really something, you know, for me to, to first of all, be on the Johnny Carson show was, was some, somewhat of a, uh, a stretch for me to even think that this was happening. But, but to have that happening the first time uh, that I went on was really interesting to me, because I really... I, I totally misjudged the audience. <laughs> totally, I've done that a couple of times. You know, but you know, I told them that uh, Hanson. I mean, uh, sorry, Here Comes the Sun wouldn't be a great record because it's live. You know, <laughs> so I made my two mistakes, and then I got out of the way. Well, you and I let everything just happen the way it's supposed to. Which is, which is a sound advice for anyone. Yes, it is. Uh, you mentioned Here Comes the Sun. One of the unique things about your career is that you keep meeting legendary composers after you've recorded or sung their songs. Bob Dylan, there's a meeting you had with uh, John Lennon and Paul McCartney oh, yeah. where you had a chance to talk about Eleanor Rigby. Yes, actually, uh, and, and it was, uh, again, one of those things that, that are part of your consciousness and our consciousness 
they walked in the door with a friend of mine who was actually driving them, and they walked and sat right down at the table in front of me. I was just sitting there like this, and they came in, sat right down, because the, the person driving them knew me. He goes, hey, Richie, you know, and they sit down, and then they start to tell me about how they liked Eleanor Rigby. And it, it was very revealing for me because... <clears throat> You know how we are in America. We fantasize a lot of things like uh, Paul is dead, you know, and all those things. You know, we get caught up in that stuff. Well, a, a young lady jumped up from the table and walked over to the table and asked Paul. She said, I heard you wrote Lady Madonna about America. Is that true? And he said, oh, no. He said, I, I, I was reading one of those National Geographic magazines, and I saw an African woman with a baby, and it said Mountain Madonna. So I just changed the name. And at that point, it was a big wake-up for me because I, it, it said to me, ordinary people, they're not these people, mythical people that we're trying to make them. They're just ordinary guys trying to play. It was a big opening for me in that sense to, to take another look at where we really were, how we thought about our music. And at that particular point, uh, you know, I, I, I was like, this is a brand new situation, you know. Now when I hear what they're doing, it's as sincere as me receiving it as them doing it. Which is why I've ended up doing quite a few Beatles songs, <laughs> quite a few. Of course, not long ago we lost George Harrison. Yeah. Did he ever talk to you about your version of Here Comes oh, the Sun? Oh, yeah. He really liked it. He, he wanted to play with me a couple of times, and we never really got the opportunity to do it. But he, he wanted to play it sometimes because I did it faster. You know? <laughs> he wanted to do it, but we never got the chance to do it. We would love to hear. Here comes Ooh. the sun. Little girl, seems like a long, long, long time. Little girl. Seems like so many years since it's been there Here comes the sun Here comes the sun And I say It's alright, it's alright, it's alright It's alright, it's alright Little darling Seems like the ice is slowly melting Little darling, seems like so many years that been clear Here comes the sun Here comes the sun And I say It's alright, it's alright, it's alright, it's alright, it's alright Seems like the smiles are returning to the faces. Little darling, seems like so many years it's been there. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. And I say, it's alright, it's alright, it's alright, it's alright, it's alright. In the end, the love you said 
That is a song that, uh, thanks to your version and the Beatles version that every generation knows, um, it's a great song performed remarkably well. And, uh, and the, the music of the Beatles reminds us that, that some music transcends generations. You have some interesting theories about what a generation gap is and what it isn't. It's not 25-year cycles, according to you. Well, they, they used to have 20, 25. As far as I'm concerned, probably past 19, I would say 1953, it, it was maybe it, anywhere from five years in between the next generation. Now I think it's probably down to two or three <laughs> because uh, you have to think that we, we get born into much, much more technologically uh, uh, available consciousness. And, uh, and, and because of that, uh, we, we, we're we're being born into the information that we, other generations, have been seeking for years. Now we're being born into it, and it's, it's at hand. If you would imagine that in 19, if, if you'd asked me in 1959 if I thought 60, 1960 would be what it was, I would have told you not in my lifetime, because that's how much and how far away freedom looked to us as a generation. Uh, just as teenagers, not as any... Uh, cultural situation, but just as a generation of human beings as we saw ourselves, uh, you know, in that sense. So therefore, we then came out for every other human being who didn't have the right to speak for himself or, or the ability to speak for himself, and, and we spoke for everybody. World peace was what we were after, and I think we still are. And I dare say that young people are going to have world peace, whether we like it or not because they're just not buying half the stuff we did, you know. <laughs> Enjoyed this conversation very much. Thank you. I uh, can't let you go, though, without hearing one more song mm. from Wishing Well. Please. Okay. <laughs> Walking downtown on Main With black Madonna Fingers holding the flame I saw an eagle rise Right out of the blue I heard a car crash for more information about Speaking Freely, visit our website at www.speakingfreely.org. Welcome back uh, to uh, the Pan-African Journal. 
this special worldwide uh, radio broadcast. That was an interview uh, with the legendary Richie Havens. And, of course, uh, we're here commemorating Black Music Month 2022. Today is uh, Sunday, June 19, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. My name is Abayomi Azikawe. I am your host. And if you'd like to have access to this program, all you need to do is go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. Another uh, outstanding uh, performance uh, at the Woodstock uh, Music Festival On the last day of the festival uh, was the performance by Jimi Hendrix, uh, leading his then uh, new ensemble called Gypsy, Sons, and Rainbows. Uh, It featured uh, Jerry Velez on percussion, Juma Sultan on congos, Mitch Mitchell on drums, and uh, Billy Cox on bass, along with Larry Lee on rhythm guitar. This is the uh, closing of uh, the Woodstock Festival during the early morning hours of August the 18th, uh, 1969. Uh, Let's listen to uh, Jimi Hendrix, Gypsy, Sons, and Rainbows. This is Eddie Kramer. I was Jimi Hendrix's engineer and producer, and you're in the studio with Jimi Hendrix at Woodstock. Thanks, Eddie. I'm Redbeard. Despite the crush of hundreds of thousands of concertgoers, the rain, the sea of mud, the crude recording equipment, and the technical problems, the entire set of Jimi Hendrix at Woodstock has miraculously survived and been lovingly restored by Eddie Kramer and John McDermott. And I'm just grateful that we were able to get back to uh, to those original tapes that Kramer recorded in the, in the truck in 1969 and, uh, and put them together in sequence as Jimmy played them uh, and, and present to fans the best of his Woodstock uh, moments. I mean, I think that for many years, uh, the Woodstock album and movie kind of crystallized Jimmy's performance, the Star Spangled Banner and Purple Haze particularly, as the highlight of that original festival. I think for many, many people, their memory of Woodstock and Jimi Hendrix is intertwined. So it's an important release for people. It's a touchstone for people of Jimi's generation, and I think for young fans, they look at it. It's one of those iconic moments where they're saying, you know, if I get one Jimi Hendrix live album, it's probably going to be live at Woodstock. You can, in fact, argue that there are greater Hendrix performances, but I think that fans, you know, for some reason, just the the link between Jimi and Woodstock is so strong that they think that that's the one i got to (laughs) have.
thank you very much for having me into your ears, in your heart. And I'm able to do it the sun and rainbows. Uh, you can call it <laughs> band of gypsies, anything you want. Let me call again. The cat with the purple pants on, playing cobbles over there. That's Juma. And we have Larry Lee with a head drop around his face. And we got, we got Billy Cox playing bass over there. Mitch Mitchell, we have Jerry Belair. I didn't mean to take a body sweet time. to recreate the event and let people hear um, what Jimmy performed. Um, you know, we started with Message to Love because that's what he walked on stage and did. And at the time, it was known as Message to the Universe. It's a great track that obviously evolved into a studio version, which we put out on an album called South Satin Delta with the big band, and that Jimmy later refined and put much more of a funk groove into with the band of Gypsies. It's always been one of the, the great tracks from that album. Um, Spanish Castle Magic by The Experience, I think, was, was wonderful to hear it in that expanded arrangement, which gave Jimmy a lot more freedom to solo and to try different things. And the other uh, unreleased tracks that we were able to put in, uh, you know, we wanted Lover Man because it was a great concert uh, song Jimmy played, really, uh, throughout his career. Um, you know, right up through some of his final performances, Lover Man was always a part of the set list, as was Foxy Lady. You know, Billy Cox always felt that you know, Jimmy enjoyed playing that because it gave him an opportunity to do his, sh his stage routines and 
play the guitar between his legs and behind the head and do all of what he felt like doing at that particular concert.
welcome back. And uh, that was uh, Gypsy Sands and Rainbows, uh, led by the legendary Jimi Hendrix uh, from the final performance uh, at the 1969 uh, Woodstock Festival on August the 18th. And uh, that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Journal uh, for today, uh, Sunday, uh, June the 19th, uh, Juneteenth. And, uh, of course, uh, we're broadcasting in the year of 2022. We've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, if you'd like to uh, have access to this program, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, with Archie Shep uh, live at the Pan-African Cultural Festival during July of 1969. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week. We are still black and we have come back. New song, Revenue. We have come back and brought back to our land, Africa, the music of Africa. Jazz is a black power. Jazz is a black power. Jazz is a African
amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.